This episode of The Challengers is brought to you by the Amazon original series, Tell Me Your Secrets. What if your daughter went missing and you knew who took her? In this psychological thriller, I play Mary, a mother obsessed with finding her missing daughter. Mary discovers that her daughter was last seen alive with a serial killer, and that killer's girlfriend, Emma, is now in witness protection. Mary is determined to hunt Emma down and get answers. From the executive producer of The Undoing and Big Little Lies, watch Tell Me Your Secrets, available now on Amazon Prime Video. Hello, you're listening to The Challengers. I'm Amy Brenneman. Today on the show, I'll be chatting with my very dear friend, Katerina Scorsone. Starting off, Katerina and I talk about her religious upbringing and how she viewed challenges, pain, and suffering. So I guess my question, because you are a thoughtful person and you and I talk about spirituality and religious traditions 24 seven. Right. When you were young um, and, and, and a challenge came your way or, you know, or, or, or somebody else, you know, there was a, a kid that you knew who was sick or you, you know, how did you look at challenge and maybe also what was the, the spiritual or religious tradition that you were raised in and, and how did that affect how you looked at things like this? Interesting. Okay. Let's see. First of all, I, I want to say one of the things that makes the conversations with you fascinating and makes our uh, presence in each other's lives fascinating, I think is we both have degrees in this. <laughs> <laughs> like we're both actors by profession, <laughs> but our, our actual university degrees are in like comparative religions and philosophy. It is. It is actually, I remember when we first met or you, you probably told me this later, but you were like, yeah, I thought I was really unique. <laughs> I know. I and it was horrifying. I was like, <laughs> oh no, when we were talking, oh yeah, I was talking about how we, yeah, I'd been through like so many of the things that you'd already been through. So I was like watching the trajectory when it had already happened. And you're like, oh, this is this is how this is how life goes. And then what's next, Amy? <laughs> Um, okay. So what was your question? Your question was, well, I want to get into that too. Like what led you to that? And, um, but I feel like, like it's such a useful thing. And, and it, I was thinking about it too. Like when I, cause I was also musing and it's something I've never done on the podcast, but I was sort of freestyling last night and also then did a t tad bit of research, but how challenges, pain, suffering are viewed in different traditions. And, you know, right. there's the, um, you know, God hates me. There is uh -huh. no God. Um, right. Or, or you know, this is penance. Like penance is an interesting thing, whether it's a Hindu idea of karma or that it, it happens in Catholicism. You know, I have ended up being probably more Buddhist than anything else where things happen. And on this human plane that we are all embodied right now, things are going to happen. People are going to get sick. There's going to be hurricanes. So that it's like, we didn't cause that. If we could, then we'd be God. <laughs> but what do we do with it? How how do we have, what do we do with it? Um, so mm -hmm. yeah, I'm interested in how you respond to that kind of thing. Gosh, okay. So this is kind of like one of the most central uh, questions I think that <laughs> one can look at in a life. <laughs> um, I can't. I was born into a uh, a Roman Catholic family. 
Um, and my, I think when people hear about uh, Catholic families, they assume that it was like mired in, in guilt and very strict. And that was not my experience, actually. Um, the family that I came from was very uh, uh, faithful, but very liberal in terms of um, uh, how they approach child rearing and people. And it was kind of more, I don't know if, you, if you've heard of the, the socialist worker. Yeah. Catholic Dorothy Day. Yeah. Dorothy Day. Yeah. Right. And so it was kind of more that vibe. It was all about like social justice and giving back to the community. Uh, and my father was uh, very involved in social work and helped to kind of found a lot of the infrastructure of the social work infrastructure in Toronto. And so there were lots of, you know, soup kitchens in my childhood. And, um, and he worked for a while um, with uh, kids who didn't have homes and, um, and later with pregnant teens and then a homeless shelter for like older gentlemen. And so very much uh, social justice was a part of, uh, of my perspective on the world. And so we did see a lot of, uh, I guess, pain and suffering in that. And that, but then there was also this like idea of like a hero's journey and like that you're supposed to be of service and mm -hmm. that this is how you engage with, um, spirit and how you engage with, um, uh, how you engage with love is that you encounter love in other people. And if you have more than they do, you help them. Um, and, 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 and you recognize each other's humanity and that every single person has this like inherent dignity, um, connected to, you know, their spiritual identity. Uh, and so when you see, examples of injustice or suffering, it is your obligation to right those wrongs, create social justice, right? And so um, it was all pretty positive. And I, and I think for a long time, and even to this day, the idea of social justice seems very intuitively like, oh yeah, that's, that's a good idea. We should do that. I believe in that. Um, but I think one of the dangers with that model um, again, is that it really lends itself to othering. Yeah. You know what I mean? Either I'm the victim of injustice and somebody, somebody should be helping me or they are the victim of injustice and I'm supposed to be a hero and rescue them from that situation. Yeah. Um, and so it still sets us up for an identification with, with yeah, with a separateness with a separateness, with a kind of duality that I think sometimes is not helpful. And I think sometimes makes us think that pain and suffering is something that we're supposed to be writing or avoiding or changing and fixing. Um, and while that seems like a heroic thing to do, when you are in a phase of life where you're encountering a pain or an injustice or a suffering that you cannot fix, suddenly you enter like an existential crisis because you're like, wait, pain is something you're supposed to rescue yourself from or rescue someone else from or someone's supposed to rescue you from or you're supposed to heal it or fix it. And there's, there's not in that model a template for befriending the pain and the suffering and um, creating a relationship with it that ends up incorporating it into your identity as opposed to pushing it away or fixing it or alienating it from yourself. And I think that actually 
when you learn, and I, I have not fully learned this, but <laughs> but it's coming. <laughs> when you learn to incorporate pain and suffering into your own identity, but also into the existential um, concept you have of the world as not something bad or other, I think you have an opportunity to really find a kind of sensuality or a power in it um, that, that kind of makes even the worst moments in life very technicolor. Oh my God, we did freaking put it all together, lady. I mean, <laughs> there's so many things that you just said that, but I love connecting it to the social justice piece. And yeah, I mean, I think you, you also, you know, why I feel so passionately about this subject and the way that we're looking at challenges in this, it's exactly what you said. It's sort of lifting out this idea that there is the normal thing, mm -hmm. which is to be without pain and suffering, right? right. So, mm -hmm. so that's the normal, that's what we're trying to get back to that, you know, and you know, my father was a sober alcoholic for 35 years in AA. I mean, I think AA was really one of the first, um, cur you know, the, the, a community that's still going and thriving to really say, like, we're not going to use that model anymore. We're always going to be alcoholics. We're right. not going to cure this thing. We're never going to cure this thing. We can be sober alcoholics, you know, and but then through that prism of being wounded, we get intimacy, we get power, we get community, right? And I think the isolation and certainly, you know, consumerism and capitalism has only heightened this, the, the, the even in all these sneaky ways, but the kind of assumption that we want to attain a certain lack of pain and suffering, perfect and ideas, like even the journey toward that is isolating. Yeah. First of all, we're going to fail at it. Second of all, what I really want to do is have be friends and you know just be a human being. It has nothing to do with being a human being, right? And and yes, there's this like looming terror all the time of like, what if I never get there, or what if I get there and then I and then I lose it? You know what I mean? Like that that it's this thing located that you can achieve or lose, right? Uh, you know what I mean? And it's re it's really a myth. This myth of like a pain-free existence or a suffering-free existence, again, it's, it, it goes back to the creation story that starts the entire kind of Western <laughs> perspective. I'd like to tinker with that creation story. <laughs> right, but, but if you look at the garden, there's this myth of this like totally suffering-free and pain-free existence where food is abundant and no one feels shame. Yeah. And then the only way we can explain how we're existing in the world today, which is observable, is that, well, we must have been expelled from that perfectly suffering-free right. place because clearly this isn't it. <laughs> <laughs> and we must have done something. I mean, again, I feel like that, I didn't grow up, um, I mean, I, mean I, I love, first of all, I love Dorothy Day. And in my rambles and studying religion, I was like, yeah, if I was going to be Catholic, it's that. Um, <laughs> but was there any, how did you chew on original sin or how did you chew on some of this stuff that you just must have heard, even if it was like, I'm going to reframe it, but it's, it is, right, yeah, sure. I, 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 listen, I'm going to Episcopalian church. I struggle with it. I'm like, and, and we're doing all sorts of stuff and changing pronouns, but even so like patriarchy is tough. <laughs> patriarchy is pretty tough. Um, Okay, so you know this, but basically, I mean, when I was a cradle Catholic, I was not chewing on it. So like, I kind of didn't, I was just like any other kid. I was like trying to avoid getting in trouble and trying to get as much dessert as I could. <laughs> you know <what> I mean? 
Um, uh, so, so I think that in my first round of Catholicism, there wasn't a lot of kind of deep thinking about that. And then by the time I kind of had a second round, which was like post starting, I mean, I, I had many years where I, I think starting at, I mean, like 15, I started seriously searching and kind of left my cradle Catholic, uh, perspective and was studying Buddhism and was uh, playing with ideas of agnosticism and, and you know, what is existentialism. And um, I had great, I had this fantastic high school teacher named Taras Gula. He was actually Ukrainian Catholic, but also an anarchist and a high school, he was super interesting, but he like would allow me to create my own curriculum because I was an actor. And so it was like one-on-one -on -one with him. And, um, and so for one of the courses, instead of studying aesthetics for philosophy, I decided to study a bunch of different schools of Buddhism. And so, so it was this whole kind of long meandering journey. Um, so by the time I came back to um, a relationship with Catholicism, I was very much um, steeped in uh, non-dual traditions. And so um, I think by the time I came back to Genesis and the New Testament and, and kind of grappling with what the, the uh, Judeo-Christian um, belief system talks about, original sin, I think, became more like the original uh, myopia that makes us believe we are separate from our divinity. Right, the ego taking over. Yeah, it's not I'm bad. Yeah. And I need somebody outside of myself to grant me forgiveness so I can come back into the garden. Right. It's I put scales over my eyes and I couldn't see my own divinity and my own innocence and my own sanctity anymore. And it made me feel separate from you. And it made me feel lack. So I felt like I had to take things from you or I had to protect my stuff. And so this duality was created right. in me that set me apart from you and them apart from us. And we all have to compete with each other and prove to each other that we are better than or good. And there's a whatever. finite amount of stuff and there's scarcity. Finite, including yeah. virtue. Yeah. You know, right. and, and, uh, and so for me, original sin be, be, has become about a reunification or a forgiveness of this perspective of separation from divinity. Right. Which also circles back to the othering idea. Um, but I think it's so beautiful that that connect that your 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 take on what the original sin is, the original distance from the happy place is really a separation from one another. Um, and how do we hold both? It's such an interesting moment in history for that. I feel like one of the reasons there's been so much um, collective discomfort and feeling about it is because it's almost like as a culture, we're growing new neurons. We've been like locked into this, again, binary thinking, othering thinking, even in our, in our, in our history books, in our literature, in our movies, who's the good guy and who's the bad guy and who's saving who from who. It's this very, again, this duality um, and this idea of like a modern narrative versus a postmodern narrative, mm. which we're finally kind of entering this postmodern era in our culture mm. where we're starting to decenter, as you were saying at the beginning, we're decentering the normative, mm. the idea of a normative. 
we're, we're saying there's not this like platonic form of human right. that is usually considered like male and white and cisgendered and straight. And everybody else is like a, a, some degree of deviation from that yeah. platonic form. And the more proximity you have to that form, the more uh, credibility you have. Yeah. And we're, we're actually as a culture, like we've put like a, a grenade into that entire paradigm and people's minds are blown. Yeah. And I think they're in like a collective trauma moment where they literally are, their nervous systems, their psyches and their identities are completely overwhelmed yeah. by the need to find new footholds and handholds to even carve out the story that they understand of themselves. Yeah. And so I think people are like literally like mind fucked. Yeah. They don't know what's happening. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and it, yeah. it's going to take this messiness for a while for us to really move into a comfortable relationship with the idea that there's not a central perspective. Right. And that there's not an objective way of being or right etc. And that anything outside of that is less than or shameful. Yeah. And I think as, uh, as, as white people who are, um, who are coming from this very unconscious, privileged relationship with what was considered the normative perspective, um, one of the really beautiful things that I think has happened this last year is a conversation about shame. Mm -hmm. uh, and our, I, our, how locking ourselves into an identity of like white or locking ourselves or, or an oppressor or, or the victim or whatever, or a racist locking yourselves into an identity where if you did something that was racist, you're a racist mm -hmm. and you should be ashamed of who you are. That was a paralyzing, uh, concept for so many people, it was paralyzing. It was like, oh my God, we all know racism is bad. That means if I actually did engage in a microaggression or if I did something unconscious uh, that I didn't realize was racist, but it harmed people, or if I co-signed on a economic structure that kept people in positions of, of uh, suffering, that means I'm racist. And if I'm, my identity is as a racist, I am full of shame. I will yeah, be exiled yeah. from the garden and there's nothing anyone can do about it. So therefore I need to push it all away and deny any participation in this because I don't want to be a shameful person who deserves exile and hell, right? I wanna be a good person. I don't wanna be a sinner. Yeah. So I am not a racist and I won't even have this conversation. I'm a good person. So don't talk to me about my accidental microaggression. Right. And what I think we've done this year is we've shifted that conversation from shame into guilt. Yeah. Guilt can be super useful because it feels bad in your body and you go, oh, I don't like that feeling. Why am I having it? Oh, because I did a thing that hurt someone. And I don't want to do that thing anymore. So I can change that behavior, but I can look at it because that's something that I have power over. I have the power to change that behavior. I don't have the power to become a non-shameful, identified with shame, bad person. 
Totally. I love all this. And also it's sort of the moving through, you know, whether it's like the, you know, every, every religious tradition has it. And in 12 steps, it's that fourth step, but you have moving, you can move through. I mean, part of why I'm not crazy about cancel culture is like, I'm a, I'm a kid of lawyers. I'm a due process person. So even, and I'm like, I always, I'm like truth and reconciliation, you know, I'm always quoting Desmond Tutu, but it's like, you know, if Cuomo did do something, sounds like he probably did. Like, can we get it out? Can we use this as an opportunity to, to get it all out? You know, maybe he'll, I'm not so concerned about him, but maybe he'll learn. How do we move because then we're just going to vilify, vilify, vilify this group, vilify that group, vilify, you know, and the pendulum, I mean, even during Me Too, which is part of what you're talking about, the dysregulation and absolutely is a miracle. But when there's no due process and when there's hysteria, I'm like, it's just a pendulum. Like, how do we sort of ground ourselves in processes internally and collectively where we can because then it's just going to swing around, you know, like we are actually going to put laws in place, have conversations, have processes. You know, I do see that happening this year. I I got involved with um, white people for black lives um, and standing up for racial justice. And I can't say enough about them mostly because I can say my dumb, dumb comments and not affect people, (laughs) but, but I need to learn. Right. And I get, and, and like you're saying, just not stay stuck in, I'm afraid to say anything because it might be the wrong thing. You know, you find our safe spaces to learn and grow and have men- be mentored and stuff. But I think, I think again, it's sort of, you know, that, that, um, you know, I feel like it keeps circling back. It's the, it's the individual story and the collective story, but there's no platonic idea of a culture either. You know, we are stumbling toward humanity, right? And if part of what we agree upon in a democratic society is that each person has valid and is this has the same amount of validity i mean it's really this incredible it's not just like everybody gets a vote it's like it's kind of bigger than that you know and that's what we're sort of attempting to look at a little bit more a lot more deeply right right and and i think you're right about the more we are able to hold our imperfections and reduce shame around mistakes the more people are going to have the courage to be accountable. Stick around. We'll be right back. This episode of The Challengers is brought to you by the Amazon original series, Tell Me Your Secrets. What if you thought you killed someone, but you couldn't remember? In this psychological thriller, Emma, the girlfriend of a serial killer, is trying to figure out what role she played in the disappearance of a missing girl, Teresa. Teresa's mother, Mary, which is the character I play, is obsessed with tracking Emma down and finding answers. Mary even hires a serial predator to hunt for Emma, because what wouldn't a mother do to find her daughter? Am I right? This show is full of twists and turns, and you're constantly questioning whether a character is the victim or the villain. You don't want to miss this highly addictive thriller. From the executive producer of The Undoing and Big Little Lies, watch the Amazon original series, Tell Me Your Secrets, available now on Amazon Prime Video.
Moving forward in today's episode, Katerina and I discuss the shift in society towards a more inclusive culture. Let's listen to the rest of my conversation with Katerina. What I think is interesting is talking about growing up um, because what I found, and I was just, I just was talking about this actually in a 12 step meeting last night that, you know, I was a pretty joyful kiddo. I was, um, you know, we didn't have tons of money, but I was like, yeah, yeah, I, I was a happy, happy kid. So therefore when something would come along, I almost felt like I didn't, uh, I wasn't allowed the space to have troubles the way everybody else did, you know, either because of where I was in my family system or like, I have enough food on the table and look at that guy, you know, and that idea of like holding, I get to have troubles too. And, um, you know, and it's funny, I feel like, like I, I was, I had glimpses of, of, of the shift of that through different work I was doing, but, but certainly, you know, being Shar's mother and sort of going like, okay, I'm a, I'm a mother of, of somebody with a, with the culture considers a disability and, and, and not inappropriately, but, but I think the usefulness part of that is like, um, I, I earn my seat, you know what I mean? Like we all have shit. I have shit. I'm not over, you know, it's, it allowed me to go, um, yeah. There's things in my life that are easy. There's things that are like in my life that are more challenging, just like everybody else. But I think that my family, I think being the joy baby in my family of origin, it took me a while to take, to allow myself to that part of humanness. Right. Well, and I do, I do, I think we're, we're spoon fed that as a culture too. The, the, again, this like meritocracy where you're supposed to be like, you know, um, yeah, constantly involved in self-improvement and yeah, that there's this mountaintop of I've done all the work and I've achieved all the things and I'm, you know, that, that, that we're trying to get to. And so, yeah, I think, and especially growing up in like a, a, a family and your family, your mom was a judge, this idea of you want to be a good person and be of service. And so how can my shit be of service? If I, if I have shit and other people have to help me, then am I a burden? Right. This idea of burden, that's interesting. So the idea that any human <laughs> could be a burden to a culture or a society. I mean, that's what that's what you and I as parents of, of kids with disabilities had to confront a lot was this idea that like people would see our children and we heard it. I mean, there were there were constantly terrible things that I would hear about like, you know, people questioning the value of of my daughter's life because of her economic burden. <laughs> and it's like, are we really at a place where someone's economic viability or their like financial contribution is the sum total of their value? And what is the beauty and the usefulness of people who are not meeting that platonic platonic Oh, and you see it on the other end. I mean, my mother, you know, I mean, you see it, you know, my mother was a very useful person and starting about 10 years ago, she could not be useful in that way. And, and we would, we would talk about, you know, we'd, she'd come over and sit in my kitchen and read the paper and my kids would really, really like when she was there and she wouldn't really interact with them. By the way, she never really played with me either. You know, But when I would say to her, wow, my kids really like when you come over. And she would say, why? I don't do anything. I don't know. And I said, well, I don't know. Just the presence of a grandmother in a kitchen seems to have some meaning to them. (laughs) But this idea of proving your worth all the time um, is really 
terrifying. And also, you know, I, I mean, the Marxist view of disability is, you know, we could talk for days. I mean, it's just like, oh, it's not doesn't even doesn't it's not even that deep, you know. What I mean? Right. But oh, but isn't that interesting? So as you're saying this, I'm I'm so, I'm hearing what's my usefulness? And and am I like so the extent to which my presence creates any kind of friction or contrast is the extent to which I become a burden on the people around me, which is essentially the idea of perfection as a self-annihilation. Like the extent to which I don't bother anyone yeah. <laughs> and I make as little impact as possible on anyone's experience is the extent to which I have attained perfection. Right. Like all that is, is like, incredible self-denial right right <laughs> but it's but it's but it's the family system writ large and the patriot i mean and the idea of i mean it's funny i have i just flashed on this um when i first moved to new york i was in my like mid-late 20s and was really struggling for reasons i it was really the first time I was on my own, essentially. And I and I really was like, I'm going to try to make it a go of it as an actor and just had all this self-doubt. And it, and it's, it's, a, it's a tender time, you know, and, and I really wouldn't even pathologize it more than that. The right. interesting thing was nobody had prepared me for this. You know, my parents, they were sweet, but I'm like, no, I felt like I'm the only one that's ever felt this, you know. Yeah, yeah. And I went to the Cathedral St. John of the Vine, which is my favorite place in New York. And this was in the, whenever it would be, like not early 90s. So AIDS was still pretty, pretty big. And we had the church service. And then they said, if anybody would like to have a little hands-on blessing, you know, go to this chapel. And I'm sobbing. And I was like, I'm thinking like, I need a hands-on blessing. Like I was drawn to getting hands-on blessing. And in my mind, I was like, you don't need a hands-on blessing. You know, what? what? You're fine. Mm -hmm. But thank God, spirit, like I knelt down and the other person kneeling down was a, was a young man, like really sick. And they start, and the priest, I'll always remember this. She laid her hands on me and she said, what, what is your trouble? And I was like, I don't know. Like I couldn't, I don't even know. And she was so sweet. And she, and she's like, you know, God, like Amy's having a hard day or whatever she said. And then the guy who was sick, kind of checked me out and went over and was holding space for me. And I remember it was totally out of body because I knew that this was such a gift. I knew that I needed it, but my ego was like, what's wrong with you? Like this simple thing of like, I'm having a hard day. I I'd like, I'd like some help. So I had both. Thank God I did have that instinct to give myself what I needed. But I think that, you know, my troubles, my challenges weren't as big as that guy's. And it's just fascinating. And and really, it was a simple thing when you think about it. It's like, I'm thirsty, give me a drink of water. Like to have somebody give you comfort is not a hugely complicated thing. But my ego perfectionism was, you know. Well, and and, and it's ego perfectionism and it's self-denial, which is violence against yourself. But it also, and I have the same thing. It also ends up being like a kind of grandiosity where you're like, I see that I am in a a superior position to those other people. So I don't have a right to help. Right. Right. So in this weird way, I'm a helper. You're the, you're the person that needs help. (laughs) Right. But, but yeah, so you're denying yourself, you're hurting yourself. And simultaneously you're allowing yourself to exist in a superior psychological position to the, to the person that you're encountering. Right. Right. So, so, you know, right. And also one of the things too, is like, I think about the characters that we play on television and the fact that millions and millions of people tune in every week 
to be with the most dysfunctional, fucked up, <laughs> broken, messy, unfortunate humans <laughs> as they walk through this world, like breaking shit. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? And, and somehow that comfort that as actors we embrace because we don't have to like own it ourselves, but that, that uh, comfort and transparency we have with these characters who are a mess somehow offers the service um, of authentic witness for so many people. They get to show up and they get to forgive us yeah. and they get to be empathetic to us. And so our brokenness and our flawedness is the service that creates this cathartic experience for this other person as they join us in empathy and join us in grief. Right. You know, right. Sometimes our being fucked up and broken is like a beautiful gift. Thank God that we are artists because I think that always, you know, sort of like me kneeling in the cathedral, I'm like, I always wanted to be in plays. Like I always wanted to, like, there was some part, it's like, okay, I can't, I'm not going to get that from becoming a lawyer. Like there's something in this whole witnessing archetypal thing of 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 being and also you know honestly every single character I've played um I fall in love with yeah even if at the outset you know or or on a tv show they they you know you get a script it's like I don't know why she does what she does and like I um I never knew why Violet did what she did but <laughs> <laughs> but like that, my job was to do it and not critique it. And then I got to be transformed along the way too, of like, yeah. oh, this is, um, I mean, I feel like that's the, 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 the crazy genius of Shonda and art in general and television in specific. We get mm-hmm. to be, exist over time. Yeah. And, and, and I think we as actors get to experience shadow parts yeah. through the characters that we would never right. identify with as ourselves. We go, I mean, we we fall in love with our characters. Like we love them like our children. And we're like, oh, look at that thing she always does. That's so horrifying. Mm-hmm. I'm glad it's not me, but I, <laughs> I love her. I know, I know. And through that process, we end up forgiving ourselves for the slivers or large pie slices of ourselves that actually are that shadowed quality. We must know it. Otherwise we couldn't play it. <laughs> totally. um, what I want to ask you, okay, I'm going to, um, what do you, in terms of shadow, because I think they're, they're in, in 2020, Trump's presidency in general, but certainly 2020 and sort of the apotheosis being January 6th, I feel like there were so many archetypal energies um, running around and you know, toxic masculinity, white nationalism. I mean, there's a million, a million ways to describe it. But I have thought about um, I'm all, all over the place. But then I want to. I have a. Do you have a specific question? In the same way that we need to, in terms of seeing things that we don't see enough and balancing our culture out, we need to see women in leadership. We need to see uh, non-white people in leadership. We also need to see more of 
awesome, brokenhearted, emotionally available men. I think Biden's one, Merrick Garland's one, Jamie Raskin, I mean, I think changed the culture forever of like, I, 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 I am showing up here with strength and clarity and my broken heart. And in fact, my broken heart is leading the way, you know, and, and the memory of his son. I had, a, I had a great dad. I had an open-hearted dad. So it's like, okay, we need, you know, Gals need to be a little bit more strong. Men need to be a little bit more open-hearted. I mean, the January 6th thing, when you, I mean, all the horrors of it, but now that we can look at it sort of in archetype, do you think that was an enormous pushback from, as you said, this, our culture really doing this foundational work that we put off in terms of who's central, who's on top, who's, you know, was that a huge pushback? Was it last gasp? Like, what do you, what was your... I don't know. I do think this whole period of time is definitely going to be like two steps forward, one step back. And, and I think that the, that we see that in our own, in our own personal journeys of like growth is like, yeah, just when you think you're like starting to get the lesson, there's like a huge, <laughs> you revert. I thought I and, was and, done. <laughs> and you're like, Oh, that's that thing that I learned that I said I was never going to do again. Right. And here it is trying to survive. <laughs> and some of that I think is, yeah, like, you know, if you look at the, our culture as like a, an ego structure, you know, just like when you're studying Buddhism or when you're studying Hinduism, uh, you know, and you have a great meditation practice uh, or, or in a Judeo-Christian tradition as well, you have a great uh, practice and, you're, and you're, your goal is to is to desensitize your ego structure so that you can identify with the, the, the divine love part inside. And so it's great when the ego structure starts to fall away. And also, holy shit, <laughs> that's my ego structure. <laughs> like what, what will be left of me? How am I gonna get to the grocery store? <laughs> exactly, you won't, you're dead. <laughs> It's all, it's terrifying. And so I think for a, for a collective ego, our culture, um, they're going to be fits and starts. Yeah. <laughs> so we're like, yeah, I want to be that person. Yeah. But like, I don't know how that looks and I'm terrified. Right. And action reaction too. I mean, that's where it's like, I was, I, I totally own it. My naivete, you know, four or five years ago, it's like, I didn't know action reaction. You know, I didn't know that as you, have a person of color as a president, like there's, there's just gonna, there's a whole bunch of energy that's going to come back at that. Um, and, you know, I was, I was naive about that. And, and it, and it's, it's funny that there, there's a, there's a phrase in, in behaviorism, which Charlotte actually didn't have too much strictly behaviorist stuff, but she had a lot of peers that did. And, mm -hmm you know, a friend of mine taught me this, that, that, you know, let's say your, you know, kiddo is focusing on a certain behavior and, you know, you can't hit your, hit your sister. Right. And so it's like really, really working hard, going well, getting some treats, getting it. And then seemingly total backlash and, ah, but they right. call that an extinguishing behavior. I mean, often after yeah. that moment, a, a real yeah. foundational change is often occurs. So I think about that too. Like it's not, um, and then also, you know, I, I do think that my own growth is not linear and I, mm -hmm. it's, I don't, it's more like living with my own. It's like, I have the same fears. I have the same challenges. I have the same traps. 
So what gets better? Well, what gets better is I don't take action on that. I can observe There's a little bit more detachment. I am much better at asking for help and not staying isolated or proud. A lot mm-hmm. better at that. Mm-hmm. But in terms of any fantasy I have, like they will fall away. It's like, no, like I got curly hair. Always have curly hair. <laughs> but that's, again, I feel like why I love this subject matter, like being, you know, again, like AAP, like Charles never going to have, not have a neurological difference. You know, my father never grew out of being an alcoholic, like, but you have a fantastic life and you actually have a life that is more honest and authentic in your relationship. You know, you, it's, it's what we want. Right. But it's like how we get there is so hard. And I think the, the, the big piece for me, um, this year, well, gosh, for a lot of years moving into this idea, um, again, kind of away from this duality idea of there's bad and there's good. And that includes there's bad feelings like anger and sadness and suffering and pain. And then there's good feelings, happiness, you know, joy, all of those. And, and kind of starting to mix that into more of a soup and go, it's not this duality of good and bad. Let's get curious about the whole thing, the yeah. whole experience of life. Yeah. Let's, let's move it from like, and then I accomplished mostly good feelings and then some setbacks, which were bad feelings. Yeah. Moving into like, oh, I want to get curious about like, what does it feel like in my body when I am full of rage? Yeah. What does it feel like to be so deeply hurt or disappointed? Like, what are the colors of that? And as artists, I think we can encounter it. I mean, think of like theater school or, you know, a, 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 a Jungian class, you yeah. know what I mean? Like, like to actually go, Ooh, what is the color of this particular sadness? What is the, what is the sensation of this particular feeling of disappointment or betrayal or fury? And like, if we move it into the body and stop judging it morally and we see it aesthetically, yeah, then we can kind of start to embrace the whole thing. And again, reduce shame to the point that we can actually choose how we want to behave um, without that judgment. Well, I love that too. And where I go with that is, you know, you think about, so many behaviors, you know, just thinking of myself are to get out of a feeling, right? Mm-hmm. And it's just to get out of a feeling. So you watch somebody that's getting newly sober when I had, you know, changed my, some behaviors that were getting me into trouble. It's just, ex- the feelings feels excruciating, yeah. but feelings don't kill you. And the big thing is I'm not going to act out on, you know, I'm not going to make it worse, put salt in the wound or, mm-hmm. and then, and then yeah, it's like incredible how we do so much to either get out of a feeling or prevent a feeling or the narrative of our, of our, you know, the dum-dum narrative, the ego narrative is like, I'm past that. It's like, I'm having, you know, people are so eloquent that suffer from, from depression. It's sort of like, I am done. Oh, there's that little feeling. It's like a migraine coming on and the Mm -hmm. anxiety of what that might lead. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But that also like physiologically makes literally makes things worse it's like can you just like yeah oh, and now and also what comes along with that is my fear that i'm gonna have a week in my bed or whatever the the thing is and and that it's so um i know i would have i had like when i was watching some of the insurrectionists and just this kind of like wild um i don't know even find the words but the id and the, the it's like 
wow, you know, but it's like, I have fantasy about like, let me just talk to this. Like I get all the feeling, right. The, what's the feeling like displacement or you're feeling like part of, I know what it's like to feel part of something, you know, right. people that went to the Capitol thought they were part of something really important. And they were led to believe that they were, it's like, Oh, it's like when I'm in a play, <laughs> I don't know. It's like, I was trying to find pieces to identify, um, which also in this, I'm sure you would agree. Um, you know, I'm finding my way as we all are in the, in the social media space, but um, that's a pretty binary place too. Like you can't really have a complicated or have sympathy with something that, you know, it's like, oh, that's not, <laughs> and not that, not that it is the place for this kind of, com- maybe that's why I hungered for longer conversations because it's a very, um, very, bi- very binary. I mean, maybe very the binary. nature of tribal and cancel culture, right? And again, that's like echo chamber that we're all, finding ourselves in where like the liberals are only hearing from liberals in their feed and conservatives are only hearing from conservatives. And, and again, yeah, the, the other side is evil and our side is full of justice and right. Right. And it, and it, and it really makes people feel good to be on the righteous side. Right. <laughs> That's right. a really delicious feeling. Right. And it's so <laughs> obvious. And, it's hating. So, you know. and you get to be the hero. And the other <laughs> people are terrible and you're saving people. I know. I know. So um, how do you, okay, I have two questions. Well, one question and then we'll wrap it up. I mean, do you find with your kids you're able to... Um, have a similar conversation like Bodhi my friend my friend that's so sweet I said that my son (laughs) he is my friend he he's in really good shape and he Mm -hmm. is a nearly 16 year old academic uh, he's not he's not competitive athletically and stuff but he lays it on himself like I got an A minus why didn't I get an A kind of thing and he moves through it right but it's like we it's an opportunity to talk about uh patience and self-love and balance and all that kind of stuff um I mean how do your kids um deal with with their own challenges and uh, I know they're I at mean, all different stages yeah they're at such different stages oh my goodness um yeah with the baby spacing super inconvenient <laughs> Um, but I would say what's the, uh, what I'm happy for them about is that they have the benefit of a lot of the vocabulary that has been so hard won in our yeah. generation's yeah. lives. Yeah. So again, this like, when there's a big feeling coming up, even addressing it to the body, oh, where do you feel that in your body? Yeah. Can, can you tell me what that feels like? Where is it? Is it in your tummy? Is it in your, and like, really understanding that you know when we have a thought it creates a physical reaction yeah you know and again yes this anxiety or this anger or whatever is attached to your body's belief that it's in danger from this thought right and so which way do we want to approach it do we want to calm the body down first so that we can actually address the thought and engage with it mm-hmm. or do we want to address the thought so that we can calm the body down but that there are these these components yeah brilliant and uh, and 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 i think going back to what you were saying about trying to get away from the feeling uh that we all do as a culture as well and i think we're really seeing that um and with shame and blame, when we have the shame feeling, we want to blame someone else because that will rescue us from feeling 
our nervous system freak out that we're going to be exiled from the tribe. Yeah. You know what I mean? And we're going to die. And all of this sensation, I think, comes back to like, you know, attachment wounds, right? And like what happened when you were a baby and pre-verbal and you were trying to figure out if you were safe in the world and where, where did you uh, ingest the idea that if you were if you, if you took a wrong step that you would not be loved and accepted and fed and cared for, you know, or that you had to somehow um, get rid of feelings because they were too big for you to handle on your own. And that's, again, people drink to get rid of a feeling. People become perfectionists to get rid of the feeling and yeah. the anxiety. And people also other to get rid of a feeling of I'm not enough or I'm bad. Yeah. And they say, no, they're bad. You're right. You know, and even even they're bad. Those people who are not part of the normative perspective, and even oh, those people who are part of the normative perspective but are not as woke as I am, they're bad. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> so I can escape my own shame for being associated with the normative perspective. Right. And so it's all this othering and othering and othering to medicate this anxiety feeling that it's we need so to. So deep, though, man. I I had um so many times this past year and, and throughout Trump's presidency, but specifically the past year because of the pandemic on top of it, I got afraid on such a reptilian level. I mean, when I saw those Lenny Riefenstahl style flags, you know, at the RNC, I mean, I'm like, oh my God, I'm Jewish and my kid's disabled. And, you know, and it was such a primal feeling that I didn't really want to run away with. It was an interesting thing to work with because I thought, on the one hand, I thought, okay, my, and I felt really privileged for having this thought, but it's like, my world is okay. Like I, I struggled with some really basic stuff that we learn in the 12 steps of like, keep the focus on myself, you know? It's like, but my empathy, because of everything, including a pandemic, which is knowing that my behavior can impact somebody that I don't even know. That's just biologically true. So I found it really challenging to keep the focus on myself, like don't have my imagination spread out too wide. But I also, the ways that I felt connections with people and populations um, that I hadn't before, I also welcomed. It's like, oh, my heart and my world is bigger now. I, but, I, but, I, but I can't solve other people's problems. You know what I mean? It was really, and the best advice, my husband was such an incredible rock for me, not that he didn't have his own, you know, I mean, just everybody was under such stress. It's like, who's more stressed and what day? <laughs> um, but but he, he kept saying like during, before the election and I would do my little things that we all did and texting or whatever. And he, and he just kept saying, keep your head down. Not, not, but it's like, just do one, one day at a time do your work, have a little faith. But I think that on that reptilian level, because we were all, it was all aroused on such a survival, on such a basic survival, you know, including, can I go to the grocery store and not get my family sick? You know, such a, so much to, to work with. With no information. Yeah. With no, like, agreed upon <laughs> information about whether you're about to accidentally kill your entire family. <laughs> right. And I, and it's funny, I was talking to this woman, Juliet Kayam, who's this um, worked in the department of Homeland security. And I did sort of these, these kind of weekly um, challenger stuff that were a little bit more casual, but partly it was like to give 
myself and people some tools. So we had a therapist on dealing with stress and Juliet coming on. She's just a fabulous woman. And she, I remember this was in July of last year. And she said, you know, people think 2021 is going to be all out of the woods. She's like, I don't really think that, but she, but she said, but if we have different leadership, it's going to feel better. So we had leadership that was um, not only not helpful, but um, on purpose, confusing us for various and sundry reasons, you know? So it's like, (laughs) give me the facts. (laughs) And then at least I can tell my nervous system here the facts. Yeah. Um, As far as we know, as far as we know, by the way, you taught me the, uh, the phrase cyto, cyto, what is it? Cyto, cytokine storm. Cytokine storm. You, you, I remember like it, when we did the private practice thing, the idea of like the system just yeah. kind of, yeah, the whole, onto whole, itself. like almost like an anaphylactic, like right. the whole immune system going, ah! yeah, and it does. It feels like it's like a panic attack. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> like nothing bad is happening, but I'm freaking <laughs> out and I might die now. <laughs> All right. I adore you. You are the smartest person I know. Oh gosh. Come on now. You really are. I love, I love that. Like you just are the smartest person I know. And one of the most well-read people I know. And then you go on TV and you're a great actress and like super pretty. And like, like, I was like, wow, you really am three kids. One of, one of the things I'm supposed to be doing this year is saying, thank you when someone says things like that and but literally the experience that my body is having right now is like total like I'm gonna throw up okay but let me hear you say it what are you gonna say thank you (laughs) Katerina Scorsone is an actress based in Los Angeles she currently appears as Amelia Shepard on Grey's Anatomy you can keep in touch with her on Twitter at Katerina Tweets and Instagram at Katerina Scorsone. If you like The Challengers, be sure to subscribe. We're available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. We'll see you soon for a brand new episode.